Now, if you look in the bulletin, it tells us that we're in the series, Admonitions for the Last Days, Part 2. You may remember that I started this quite a while ago. I really wasn't sure when we started it, and I actually just looked back on my phone. It was in February. It was in February, and we took a little segue, and I just want to give a little refresher, very briefly, from our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, where I'm drawing this out of. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 And verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be what? Ignorant or unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became what? Our examples that we should not. And then he goes on and recounts some experiences, which I'll touch on in a moment. And then in verse uh, 11, he repeats again. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And thus the title admonitions for the last days. An admonition is a warning. Why do you give a person a warning? What do you warn people of? Danger. And we're in the last days. The Apostle Paul is telling us, and in fact, he gives us the reasoning. He basically tells us that of all, and notice his language there in the first few verses, all of our fathers did this, all of our fathers did this, all of our fathers, all of our fathers, all of our fathers, all of our fathers, fathers, except with most of them, God was not well pleased. They all had the same spiritual experience. They went to the same church. They ate at the same fellowship meal. They did the same outreach projects. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I'm warning you not to repeat the example of ancient Israel. Just because you all go to the same church and church school and, and whatever else things that you do is not going to be the thing that makes the difference. And so he gives us an admonition, and he especially speaks to those who are living in the last days. In the course of chapter 10, he recounts five different experiences from the history of Israel. And I think that Paul's intent is that all of those experiences are for our admonition. But he brings up five. And in this series, we're going to look through five. And we're going to go through them chronologically rather than the order he brings them up in. The five experiences, just so you know right now, are the experience of the golden calf found in Exodus 32. The experience where Israel was clamoring for the food of Egypt in Numbers 11. Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. The serpent on a pole in Numbers 21. And the incident at Baal Peor in Numbers 25. And all of these things, as we go through this series, you're going to find are almost strikingly and surprisingly applicable to our day. Today we're going to look at the golden calf. The story of the golden calf written, as the Apostle Paul says, for our admonition. In other words, those of us living at the end of time should be able to look at this story and draw things out that will speak specifically and especially to us today. And so I want you to put your thinking caps on with me as we draw out of this story what it's trying to communicate to those living at the end of time. And I want to just give you a little run-in to where we are. We're going to Exodus 32. That's where we find the story of the golden calf. So let's go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus 32. We're going to start in verse 1. Now God has 
gathered his people together. We, of course, he's brought them out of the land of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. He's gathered them together at Mount Sinai, proclaimed to them his Ten Commandments, followed by his statutes and judgments, and all the people entered into covenant with God. We call that the Old Covenant. And in Exodus 19 to 23, you can read all about that. Then God invited Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel into his presence to eat the sacrificial feast of the covenant they had just made. You read that in Exodus chapter 24. And then the Lord called Moses up even further into the mountain to actually give him the tables of stone and the instruction for the tabernacle and its services. That's what's happened prior to this. Now, it's while Moses is up in the mountain with God, he went up there and he told the others who had come up partway with him, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, etc., Aaron, that I'm going up and I'll be back. Well, God didn't give him a time frame, and the Bible says he was there 40 days and nights. So after some period of time, they figured, we're not going to wait for him up here. We're going to go down among the people. And it was while they were down among the people. This is where we pick up in Exodus 32. We're going to read through the whole chapter of Exodus 32. The Bible says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. When the people saw Moses what? When Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come. Make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now a lot of commentators say that the reason Aaron did this was he was thinking, in most cases, the people would never have been willing to part with their ornaments. And so he thought, well, I'll ask him for this. And they'll say, well, no way, I'm not taking my jewelry off. And he say, ah, good, I'm out of that one. Only this time they were all too willing to part with their ornaments. The Bible says, verse 3, So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with the engraving tool or an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God. I'm sorry, yeah, then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. A couple of things I want to draw your attention to. When Aaron saw it, when he saw what? Listen carefully. When he saw that it met the approval of the people, then he said, hey, let's run with this thing. And it says that he proclaimed a feast to who? How does Lord appear in your Bible? It's in all capital letters. Now that's just so you know, in case you didn't, that's what translators do with what theologians call the tetragrammaton. That is, the, the, when Hebrews wrote the name of God, they wouldn't write the vowels. They would only write Y-H-W-H. And some people have added vowels and come, come away with the word Yahweh from that. Some have assumed that the vowels added in, the Y makes a just sound and the W makes a V sound. They've come with Jehovah from that. But that's where they get it from. And when you find L-O-R-D capital in your Bible, it is the proper name of the God of heaven. It's important that you know that when they did this feast and they built a calf, Aaron did not proclaim a feast. Uh, 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 this was not to Apis, the bull god in Egypt. We're going to have a feast to who? To the Lord. 
Everything that we're doing here, it may be different from what we're accustomed to, but we're doing it to the Lord. Verse 6, Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, you can do a little research on uh, the word play there, but it doesn't mean tag. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Now, I have to interject. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today, so I have to interject here. Some people read this and they say, man, why is God, so, God is just so wanting to destroy them all? Let me ask you a question. Did God need to ask Moses permission? Did God need to ask Moses to get out of the way? No. Why was he doing it? Because God was try, testing Moses to see if Moses would intercede for the people. God could have just destroyed him if he wanted to destroy them. When he said, let me out, get out of the way and let me do this, it was an appeal to Moses. It let Moses know that if I don't get out of the way, I can do something about this. And Moses did. He entreated for the people. And this is what Moses said. Verse 11, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit, forever it. They shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, and on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of what? War in the camp. Now, something just as a flag to me that when your worship sounds like war, something's probably not right about it. But he said, it is not the noise of, sh uh, of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And so it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them in the foot of at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20, Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire, burned it in the fire, rather, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, Why did this people, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that, we, that shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. That's a likely story, isn't it? Now, folks, listen to me. As we're looking at this, and we're going to draw, I'm not going to draw every example I can. But one of the tendencies we have when we read Old Testament stories is to so distance them from where we are. You say, well, we don't worship gold, and who would think that the, throw a calf, the gold in and a calf would come out? But I have heard similar far-fetched reasoning as to why what I'm doing before God is okay, even though God said it's not okay. Well, I mean, God said it's not okay, but if it wasn't okay, how could I have been miraculously preserved? And we could go on with stories about that. But this is what Aaron tells Moses. We put the, hey, look, I put the gold in the fire, and the calf just popped out of there. It was a miracle. God must be in it. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to the sh their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says who? The Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today before the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Verse 30, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. There could be a whole sermon on that right there. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what? They did with the calf which Aaron had made. Wow. It's one of the longer examples or one instances or stories that Paul cites, and it's full of examples for us living in the last days. But I'm just going to draw out a few things that spoke to me as I went through this, as I'm looking for, you know, what is it that God may be pointing out to us. The very first thing that I noted was that this whole thing began when the coming of Moses was delayed. When Moses was in the mountain longer than they expected, they began getting into mischief. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that as Seventh-day Adventists, we've been saying for many years now that Jesus is coming, and what's the word? We don't, the word we don't like to use so much anymore. In fact, I've heard this word disparaged over and over that, why do we keep saying he's coming soon? It's been 160 plus years. Well, the point would be this. When we, it's not that we might say, okay, he's tarried longer. 
The point is, with the children of Israel, when Moses didn't come as soon as they thought he was going to come, they lost their focus. Did they have to lose their focus? I want you to notice the statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 315. It says, Had they been thus seeking a clearer understanding of God's requirements? Look, they'd just heard the commandments of God. They'd heard God's statutes and judgments. Could they have spent some time maybe meditating upon what God had asked them to do? And been spending time praying to God for strength to do it? That would have had them in a different frame of mind. Had they been thus seeking a clear understanding of God's requirements and humbling their hearts before him, they would have been shielded from temptation, but they did not do this, and they soon became careless, inattentive, and lawless. Now, Jesus speaks of the last days. In Matthew 24, he speaks of a class of servants, but he calls them evil servants. And he says the evil servants begin saying something in their heart. Anybody remember what it says in Matthew 24? What does the evil, the wicked servant say in his heart? My Lord delays his coming. And when the evil servant begins to say in his heart, Jesus isn't coming as soon as I thought he was coming, what does the Bible say he does in Matthew 24? He begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards. You see, when he loses his focus on why he's here and what it's about... The fact that Jesus is coming soon, the wicked servant begins to get caught up with the things of the world and drawn to those things. And the more he's drawn to the things of the world and gets involved in the things of the world, the more attractive they become. And I want to be very plain with you today that when we begin to involve and connect ourselves with the world, it's not going to seem as bad as it used to seem. And we may find ourselves saying, I don't know why I used to be worried about that. It's not so bad. Of course it's not so bad to you because you have become inoculated to it. And so it was with the children of Israel. And I believe the same is true with us today. That Jesus has not delayed his coming, but has tarried longer than we thought. And we've become careless, inattentive, and lawless. Notice this statement here. Ellen White comments on Matthew 24 where it talks about the wicked servant saying, my Lord delays his coming. He was a servant outwardly devoted to the service of God while at heart he had yielded to Satan. He does not like the scoffer openly deny the truth but reveals in his life the sentiment of the heart that the Lord's coming is delayed. Notice that next line, presumption renders him careless of eternal interest. What does presumption mean? Presumption is when we presume upon God's love and mercy. God's so loving and merciful, he wouldn't possibly exclude me from his kingdom, would he? I mean, after all, I've made a few mistakes, but we become careless and inattentive and act like God should be okay with that. This is how she describes that wicked servant. He accepts the world's maxims and conforms to its customs and practices, selfishness, Worldly pride and ambitions predominate. As he alienates himself from the people of God, he unites more and more with the ungodly. I am watching this happen today with people who come to church. More and more sporadically. 
They find themselves more at home with the ungodly. He is found eating and drinking with the drunken, joining with worldlings and partaking of their spirit. Thus he is what? Lulled into a carnal security. What does that conjure up image-wise? When you're lulled into something. What are you lulled to? Sleep. Right? You just don't discern anymore. You're, you're, you're in the world, you're with the world, you do the worldly things, and you just kind of aren't even aware that you are not ready for the coming of Jesus. Thus he is lulled into a carnal security and overcome by forgetfulness, indifference, and sloth. Just as Moses was delayed in the mountain, and so the people turned to the building of the golden calf, I'm afraid that too many Seventh-day Adventists today have become careless, inattentive, and lawless. That's the first thing I noticed. Now, the other thing that is probably the most obvious thing about the story is that the people began in this absence of Moses and in this careless and worldly state and mindset, they began to demand a different style of worship. That's, that's probably the most obvious part of the story. A style of worship that would be more in harmony with their worldly hearts. And it's interesting, let me rephrase that. A style of worship that was more in harmony with what they were accustomed to. Now, we talk about worship in the church today, and a lot of times we talk about cultures. We say, well, you know, it's just your culture and my culture and their culture and but brothers and sisters, don't lose this point. When you come to Christ, the Bible says your culture is now the culture of heaven, not a culture of the earth. This world is not our home. We're pilgrims and strangers. Those are words of Scripture. When a person begins to be at home in the world and worldly culture, and then they want the church to feel more like what they're accustomed to, what are they wanting the church to feel like? The world. Is that a good idea? Now, this is interesting. In the book Patriarchs, I'm going between two. Here's a little extra reading. There are two main chapters that I reviewed in, in looking at this besides Exodus 32. One was the chapter in the book Patriarchs and Prophets called Idolatry at Sinai, and the other is in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, called Moses and Aaron. Oh, that is a fascinating one. I'm just going to give you a little bit of that. But this is Patri Patriarchs and Prophets. This was Aaron's mindset. Aaron had thought that Moses had been too unyielding to the wishes of the people. He thought that if Moses had been what? Less firm, less decided at times, that if he had made a compromise with the people and gratified their wishes, he would have had less trouble and there would have been more peace and harmony in the camp of Israel. You should be connecting dots. Because at least here in North America, this has been going on in our church for some time now. Changing our worship to be a little bit more, what will we say? Seeker sensitive. Um, a, a term I've heard recently is the safe church. We want our church to be safe to people. They want them to feel safe here. What does that mean? Aaron has this idea. Now notice it goes on to say, he, Aaron, therefore, had been trying this new policy. He carried out what? His natural temperament by yielding to the wishes of the people. I want to tell you something right now, saints. 
I would much rather yield to the wishes of people and never have anybody mad at me. Sometimes people think that pastors just like people to be mad at them. And that's why we say what we say. I would rather say anything else. But I can't stand before God and I can't one day look my Savior Jesus in the face if I just live to please people. I couldn't look you in the face on the other side of that wall if I'm just living to please people. Aaron thought he's going to do this new thing, but reality, the reality, and oftentimes reality in our own hearts, when we think we're being more merciful, we're not being more merciful, we're taking care of ourselves. We don't want to be the bad guy. Aaron thought he'd try out his new policy. And so, he with the people designed a worship to meet their perceived needs. Do you know that our perceived needs are often not our real needs? There are a lot of things you may think you need that the Lord knows you don't need. There may be things you've asked the Lord for in prayer, and you're like, I don't know why I don't have it yet, because the Lord knows better than to give you sometimes what you ask for. Me, what I ask for. It's interesting that when they went out there, in verse 6 of chapter 32, it says they went out and they had this worship. Did you notice what kind of sacrifices they offered? The Bible says they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. What was missing? Huh, no sin offerings. Because sin offerings make people feel uncomfortable. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. You notice what Moses said when he came from the mountain. And Joshua's like, hey, there's war in the camp. So Moses said, no, no, no. It's not the sound of the shout of victory or the cry of defeat. Right? They're not hot and they're not cold. They're comfortable. I'm not going to talk about sin because that would not be comfortable. And we want our church to be relevant. I've I, I got to be careful not to go too, too long on this point. I heard a pastor recently speaking about how we come to church and as pastors, how we shouldn't wear suits as pastors because suits make people feel uncomfortable. Then our church service ought to make people feel uncomfortable. And so we've got to kind of tone things down and become a little more, lose the tie and get casual. Saints, listen to me. There is one word that I don't think should ever come into the context of the worship of God, and that word is casual. You don't come to church for comfort. We come to worship God. And it's interesting, as Ellen White comments on this worship of the calf, she says this, as they drew near the encampment, they beheld Moses and, and Joshua, the people shouting and dancing around their idol. It was a scene of heathen riot an imitation of the idolatrous feasts of Egypt, but how unlike the solemn and reverent worship of God. Seventh-day Adventists don't understand that much of what's been happening in our own church in the last 20 years at least, since I came back in the church, is an imitation of the churches of Babylon. Some of our greatest ideas for worship are ideas that we've borrowed from people who have turned their back on the law of God. That ought to make us do some thinking. And the Bible says when they came to worship in verse 6, it says they rose up early. 
I'll bet that's the first time some of those folks were on time for Sabbath school. Bible says they rose up early. What does that tell us about the people? What does it tell us? They liked it. It tells us that they liked it. And there's an assumption today that if something draws out the crowds, it must be worthy of emulation. Whether it be food or music or some form of entertainment like a skit or a puppet show or a concert or whatever, as long as the people come, you know what's really sad is that there are churches that have capitalized on this far better than we ever have, churches like the Willow Creek Church. And I don't know if you know anything about Willow Creek because things have changed at Willow Creek. I'll tell you that in a minute. But the whole mindset of the Willow Creek Church in Chicago was that we are going to treat church like a business and we're going to market it. And we're going to ask people what they want. Now listen to me carefully. That's not so bad to ask a converted person what they'd be interested in, but when you just go ask a bunch of unconverted person what they'd be interested in in church and you make a church like that, that's not a good idea. So Willow Creek, listen, you're talking about 20,000 people in attendance for a worship service. And for years, Seventh-day Adventists were sending ministers to Willow Creek to learn how they did church. How many of you are aware of this? But here's the amazing thing. Somewhere in recent years, oh, I wish I, did I put, they may have put the date in here. In 2007, Christianity Today, October 18, an article came out called Willow Creek Repents. And in that article, they said, you know, we did draw out the crowds. But what we began to realize is the crowds weren't getting spiritual. Greg Hawkins, who was the executive pastor of Willow Creek at the time, said this. This was their philosophy that they said they ended up realizing didn't work. Participation is a big deal. We believe the more people participating in these sets of activities with higher levels of frequency, it will produce disciples of Christ. In other words, if more people come to everything more often, that's going to do it. And so their goal was, let's just fill the church and get crowds. But they came to this point where they said, it didn't work. Christianity Today published an article, but you know what? Even Seventh-day Adventists still haven't gotten that point, and we still think, oh, we'll just crowd them in. Use whatever method possible. Look, folks, that, what else are you going to draw out of the golden calf? Tell me that's not in there. You know, maybe, maybe Pastor Howard is putting a little spin on it. I don't know. But when I'm trying to draw out the lesson from that story to now, it seems pretty obvious. Aaron, make us a worship that's similar to what we're used to. And when he did, it drew the crowds, and they were out early. Notice Patriarchs and Prophets, page 317, says, under a, the pretense of holding a feast to the Lord, which we already looked at, they gave themselves up to gluttony and licentious reveling. How often in our own day is the love of pleasure disguised by a form of godliness? A religion that permits men, while observing the rites of worship, to devote themselves to selfish or sensual gratification is what? As pleasing to the multitudes now as in the days of Israel. Notice this one, Testimonies, Volume 6. If you love the standard 
in order to secure popularity of an increase of numbers and then make this increase a cause of rejoicing. Hey, let's lower the standard. Look at that. We got all these people coming now because we don't preach anything anymore. We just, what was it? One pastor said, we've, we've mastered the art today of almost saying something. Oh, look at the crowds coming in and make this a cause of rejoicing. You show great blindness. If numbers were evidence of success, Satan might claim the preeminence, for in this world his followers are largely in the majority. It is the virtue, intelligence, and piety of the people composing our churches, not their numbers, that should be a source of joy and thankfulness. Now let's look at another element from this story. And it, and it isn't readily um, seen in chapter 32, but if you look at Exodus 12, Exodus 12 and verse 38. The Bible tells us that when Israel left in the Exodus, Exodus 12, 38 says, A mixed multitude went up with them also. Who were the mixed multitude? I like to call them Israelites. They're Egyptians in Israel, right? Right? And you know the old saying, you can take a boy out of the country, but you can't take the what? Country out of the boy. And the problem with the mixed multitude is that they came out. But notice, I'm going to read two statements here. The mixed multitude had been the first to indulge murmuring and impatience, and they were the leaders in the apostasy that followed. In this multitude, in Patriarchs and Prophets, it says this, in the multitude coming out of Egypt were not only those who were actuated by faith in the God of Israel, those are the true followers, but also a far greater number who desired only to escape from the plagues or who followed in the wake of the moving multitudes merely from excitement and curiosity. This class were ever a hindrance and a snare to Israel. In other words, it wasn't in their heart. They're, they're in it for some other reason other than really the worship of God. And because they were there, they became a hindrance and a snare to Israel throughout their journeys. What's the connection today? What do you think the admonition would be today? You think there are a mixed multitude in our church today? I think we got a Jizraelites today. People who in their heart really aren't into being Seventh-day Adventists. For whatever reason, they might, maybe it's sensationalism, maybe they're just trying to escape. It's an escape policy. Maybe it's a covering their, hedging their bets. Notice this statement. The accession of members who have not been renewed in heart and reformed in life is a source of weakness to the church. This fact is often what? Ignored. Some ministers and churches are so desirous of securing an increase of numbers that they do not bear faithful testimony against unchristian habits and practices. I'm going to tell you, Pastor Daniel and I run into this a lot. We're clearing somebody for baptism. There are people we have to say they're not ready. And I'm going to tell you right now, saints, sometimes somebody else comes and baptizes them. I can't. Some other pastor. Not all pastors care about what's written here because numbers look good on a pastor's resume. But I'm not going to baptize somebody that, to my knowledge, shouldn't be baptized. Why? Because they become a snare. They do not bear faithful testimony sometimes, ministers, against unchristian habits and practices. Those who accept the truth are not taught that they cannot safely be worldlings in conduct while they are Christians in name. 
That was a good opportunity for an amen there. Heretofore, before now, that means, they were Satan's subjects. Henceforth, from this point forward, they are to be subjects of Christ. The life must testify to the change of leaders. Shouldn't it? You should be able to see that somebody's following a different leader now if they're following Christ and then we're following the devil, right? Public opinion favors a profession of Christianity. Little self-denial or self-sacrifice is required in order to put on a form of godliness and to have one's names enrolled upon the church book. Hence, many join the church without first becoming united to Christ. Have mercy. In this, who triumphs? Satan triumphs. Such converts are his most efficient agents. They serve as decoys to other souls. You know how many times a pastor hears somebody say, well, pastor, why should I do that if that person doesn't do that? Why should that be allowed if that's not allowed? We got a lot of decoys in the church. You ought to be aware of that, right? This fact is often ignored. Don't ignore it. I would not have you be ignorant, the Apostle Paul said, of what's happening in the church. Now listen, the problem with the mixed multitude isn't that they were sinners any more than you and I are sinners. The church has been called a hospital for sinners, but make this clear. How many of you go into a hospital and expect to come out exactly the same way you went in? Praise God the church is a hospital for sinners. But then the sinner should want to be changed. The mixed multitude didn't want to be changed. Now in this whole course of Exodus 32... Moses gave an opportunity for repentance before there was execution. It was only those who persisted that met that execution. This is the last point that I'm going to draw out of this. And I think it's a powerful one. I'm going to recommend to you again the chapter, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3. The chapter is called Moses and Aaron. The sympathy of the people was with the wrong leader. The people wished that Aaron could be their leader instead of Moses. You know, the Bible tells us in the last days, people will have itching ears and they will heap up for themselves teachers. How many of you are aware of that? You read that. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, in the last days, people are going to heap up for themselves teachers that tell them what they want to hear and they scratch the itch. I've said it before, the sermon you like the least is the one you need the most. And the one you like the most is probably the one you didn't need at all. That goes for you and for me. Aaron was a people pleaser. The Bible says he failed to restrain the people. Testimonies 3 says Aaron's natural desire to please and to yield to the people led him to sacrifice the honor of God. You think that concerned the people? They said, man, I don't want a leader like that. I want a leader who's faithful to God, right? Oh, think again. When the people saw Aaron, they thought they had a general who just suited them. Finally, God sent us the right pastor for this church. And they were ready to do anything that he suggested. They sacrificed to their golden God. They offered peace offerings. They gave themselves up to pleasure, rioting and drunkenness. They were then decided in their own minds that it was not because they were wrong that they had had so much trouble in the wilderness, but the difficulty, after all, was with their leader. He was not the right kind of man. He was too unyielding and kept their sins continually before them. 
warning, reproving, and threatening them with God's displeasure. A new order of things had come, and they were pleased with Aaron and pleased with themselves. They thought if Moses had only been as amiable and mild as Aaron, likable, Aaron smiled a lot and he was so warm. What peace and harmony would have prevailed in the camp of Israel? They cared not now whether Moses ever came down from the mount or not. Interesting. Now notice this one. It says, when Moses, on returning to the camp, confronted the rebels, his severe rebukes and the indignation he displayed in breaking the sacred tables of the law were contrasted by who? By the people with his brothers, pleasant speech and dignified demeanor, and their sympathies were with Aaron. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. This ought to be a warning to every one of us. What it's telling us is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There are things that we think we need that we don't necessarily need. There are leaders we think that would be the right leaders, and there are probably the reality is all of us gather together certain books and certain chapters that we like, and we like to read them over and over because they're the things that we like, and they may be all well and good. And sometimes we hear things and say, I just don't like that. But the thing we just don't like may be the very thing we needed. The people's sympathies were with Aaron. You remember when, when, when God called Moses and he said, I can't speak well. And he says, your brother Aaron could speak well. Well, evidently so. But that was not a blessing to the people. Notice this, to justify himself. We get this in the story, right? Moses said, what did these people do to you to make you treat them that way? And he wasn't saying it in a good way. And Aaron's like, you know the people. You know how they are. They're fickle and wayward and self-centered, right? In today's language, we'd say he threw them under the bus, right? I mean, Aaron's like, I'm for the people. But when he's confronted, they're under the bus. No, now this is what this is saying. To justify himself, Aaron endeavored to make the people responsible for his weakness in yielding to their demand, but notwithstanding this, They were filled with admiration of his gentleness and patience. Hey, go ahead, throw us under the bus because you let us do things the way we want. Oh, the lengths that people will go. Notice this one here. The people were charmed with Aaron's lovely spirit and were disgusted with the rashness of Moses. But let me tell you something. Aaron didn't love the people. He's what Jesus called a hireling, not a shepherd. Moses, what did Moses do? Unbeknownst to the people, Moses was up in the mountain saying, Lord, if you're not going to save them, don't save me. Moses, after spending 40 days, if you read on, spent 40 more days in intercession for the people. But little did they know, they're just like, we want Aaron. We want Aaron. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are living in the last days. There are a few lessons. You can draw more lessons. You can go home and process this today. But the Apostle Paul tells us, don't repeat the history of Israel. It is too likely and easy for us to do it. And I hope that in this you've seen at least some, yeah, there are some connections today. Look, the devil is going to try to undermine us and steal our crown in any way that he can. And we've got to be aware of his devices. The Bible gives us admonitions. So we don't repeat 
their mistakes. But we're encouraged to keep our eyes on Jesus, focus on his word. If it's not in harmony with Christ and his word, if it's not in harmony with the principles of spirit or prophecy, don't trust your own judgment. Trust the Lord. I want to finish this with this. Oh, I was going to go into something else. Finish with this statement here. Warning, admonition, promise, all are for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us what? Watch and be sober. Watch against the stealthy approach of the enemy. Watch against old habits and natural inclinations, lest they assert themselves. Force them back and watch. Watch the thoughts. Watch the plans, lest they become self-centered. Watch over the souls whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. Watch for opportunities to do them good. If you draw close to Jesus and seek to adorn your profession by a well-ordered life and godly conversation, your feet will be kept from straying into forbidden paths. Amen. If you will only watch, continually watch unto prayer. If you will do everything as if you were in the immediate presence of God, you will be saved from yielding to temptation and may, be hope, and may hope to be kept pure, spotless, and undefiled till the last. If you hold the beginning of your confidence firm unto the end, your ways will be established in God, and what grace has begun, glory will crown in the kingdom of our God. Friends, our master is not delaying his coming. He's coming soon, and I want to be ready when he comes. And I know you want to be ready too, don't you? Isn't that your desire today? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we review this history of Israel, as we review the counsel of the apostle, as we seek to draw lessons from Israel's mistakes, and Father, lessons also from your long-suffering and mercy with them, today we want that mercy in our lives. We want our feet to be kept steadfast. By your grace, we want you to help us to watch and not lose our focus that what grace has started in us, glory will crown one day soon when Jesus comes again. We ask and pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.